the meher has often been translated as dowry. I personally reject that translation because in European countries in the West, the dowry was a bride price. What it is, is a financial gift. It is a giving at the occasion of the contract of marriage. And that amount is not limited on the high end, nor is it limited on the low end, but it must occur. So when we know that it must occur, I believe it should give us pause and we should say to ourselves, okay, this is something really important. This is something that is a critical part of the beginning of a marriage. Islamically, I would say that there is financial stability for women. The mahr starts that process out by giving a woman financial security. Oftentimes, we can be so quick in discussing the details of the wedding hall and guest list, yet we rarely reserve the time for serious discussions such as financial compatibility, especially when it comes to mahir. You're listening to Unsweetened and Unfiltered, the podcast, episode 9 of season 3. The topic of mahir at times can be so nerve-wracking when discussed by potential spouses. Questions such as how much one should ask for and is there a limit for the amount requested are at the top of everyone's list. In today's episode, we will be joined by Dr. Gray, founder of Rabata, to discuss the details of the Islamic contract and why it's obligatory between partners. If you're like me, then you may have struggled with the concept of mahr at one point or another in your life. Western media likes to portray it as a dowry or a bride price, and the last thing women want is for a man to place a price tag on her at his own discretion. But what if I told you that dowry and mahr are completely different? I'll never forget in high school when a classmate of mine expressed her disdain how I will one day have a man tell me how much I'm worth. And unfortunately, in that moment, I didn't have a comeback for her. Just like her, I was naive and assumed that's how mahr works between two future spouses. I pictured myself being sized up by the groom's family, being inspected from head to toe, and finally given a final price, a take-it-or-leave-it kind of scenario. Fast forward to today and I'm truly cringing at how I used to think. Our faith is far too beautiful and empowering to ever make women feel less than, especially when it comes to marriage and all that it entails. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Gray, a household name in most Muslim communities because of her constant support and mentorship of hundreds of women around the world. Her organization, Rabata, is dedicated to promoting positive cultural change through creative educational experiences. And so with gratitude, I am truly humbled to have Dr. Gray on the podcast and she is a perfect guest for this specific topic. I had asked you all a few weeks back what personal questions you may have and Dr. Gray made sure to answer every single one of them. She begins with defining what mahr is and its origin within the Islamic context. She also provides a valuable insight on how to gauge what to request and what to do with your mahr. And of course, as much as we hope a marriage can last between spouses, there is the possibility of it ending in divorce. So she also briefly advises on how mahr should be handled from that point too. I want to thank Dr. Gray once more for lending herself as a resource and for empowering women when it comes to the topic of mahar and how one should invest their assets. We need more of these conversations and inshallah we can continue having them. Be on the lookout for a future episode I will be releasing in regards to prenups from a Western standpoint. Let's dive in. (music) 
Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Gray. I feel like this is a conversation that is completely necessary, especially within our community. I feel like even in my own personal experience, I don't know much about Mahir. I don't know much about my rights as a woman to Mahir. And I feel like this is a conversation that is truly long overdue. But ironically enough, I feel like couples also treat it as an afterthought when it comes to their marriage. I feel like this is like almost the last discussion that they have. And I've seen actual families break apart and not actually go through with the engagement because of this discussion in itself. So I hope hope that whatever points that we do discuss, that it clears the air for a lot of people, that it does provide a lot of clarity, but most importantly, that women enter this conversation and enter their respective unions with the necessary knowledge in regards to mahar and dowry and what it says Islamically. So I would love for you to first introduce yourself. I feel like, mashallah, you have so much underneath your belt in regards to the organization you run, which is Rabata, and I, I, I find it so profound that the work that you do. So I would love for you to talk a bit about yourself as well as your organization and then we can get right into the conversation at hand, inshallah. Yeah, sure. So my name is Tamara Gray, and I'm really happy to be here with you today. And I agree with you that this is a critical topic. I think it's a critical topic sociologically, not only on a personal level. Regarding introducing myself, I am a convert. I became a Muslim in 1985, before most people were born, probably, who are listening to your <laughs> podcast. It was a hard time to become a Muslim, I would say, in looking back on it. I don't mean that I wasn't greatly blessed. I just mean that it wasn't, it just wasn't an easy time to become a Muslim as a woman. And I did find difficulty. I was blessed to eventually move to Syria, where I spent 20 years walking the path of alim, knowledge and tarbiyah. And then when the war started, I came back to the United States thinking I was coming back for five months. Uh, obvious, I did not. Well, my five months still going strong here in the eighth year. But it was a really difficult time for me. I had a lot of feelings around having left Syria in a time of crisis. There's survivor's guilt there, but I'm not Syrian. I never became Syrian. So also there was a really strange sort of feeling of a huge problem really, really outside of my circle of influence. And I remember sitting in my, my rented house next door to my brother in West St. Paul and thinking to myself, well, talking to myself and saying, well, you can do nothing really about this great sadness, this grief, this struggle in the country that you love, that has so many people that you love that had this life. I mean, I, I had 20 years of my adult life in, in Damascus, but you can take the gifts that Damascus gave you and spread them around, I suppose, that, and, and give them back is really probably the way I said it to myself. And so from there was the walk towards this organization called Rabata. Rabata means, Rabata is kind of in Arabic, a strange name, I think, to name something because it's a verb, it's a root word. And for Arabs, it sounds really weird. Like, wait, what is it? <laughs> but there, I had a lot of intention in that. I wanted it, originally, I wanted it to be this root word and every single project from Rabata was going to be a derivative of that word. So our very first project was our academic online institution that was Ribat. 
And then one of our board members said, you just can't keep doing this. Those who don't speak Arabic are just going to be lost. They're going to think it's all the same thing. And so I didn't. The next project was the publishing company and that we really went the opposite direction, called it Daybreak Press. But Rabotah stuck. And subhanAllah, it, it does mean you can say that it means to bring together, to bind together, to come together. And later, a few years later, I, I'm very, very interested in the history of Nana Asma'u in the Sokoto Khalifa of West Africa. And her organization, I didn't know this at the time, but I found out later that her organization, Yantero, the Yantero movement, actually means, according to what I read, the same thing, that it means to bring together. Yeah, I thought that was really serendipitous and very beautiful, and I was really grateful for that. So uh, what we do as an organization is I really believe in the power of education. I'm an educator, and I believe that education changes the state of the individual and the state of a community, a culture, and a society. And research tells us that women especially are carriers of culture. And so as an organization that is by women for women, I'm very particular about that. We have an all woman board. We have, we are very much a by women for women organization. And it doesn't mean that we might, I mean, like at our center here, we, we have events that certainly men might be invited to and welcome to, but our focus space is by women for women. That these educational programs, and I'm really always trying to think of how can I be really creative in education to make these cultural changes that are really necessary. So that's me. I'm also a grandmother. That's actually people like like to know those little details about you. And I, I'm a coffee drinker, which is something that I'm quite well known for. I'm a coffee fanatic. I'm, I'm glad I found another coffee addict. I just, I don't know how some people unfortunately live their lives without ever liking or drinking coffee. I'm like, how do you function? Because I can't without coffee. That's impossible. But I also do it for just the feeling, to be honest. It's just a nice, if you go to a cafe, you sit down, you do your work. It's also for the experience and the ambiance. So I'm glad we can relate on that for sure. All of it. All of it. There were fatwas in the 18th century. There was a long discussion about coffee amongst the scholars. And towards the end of it, there were some really beautiful fatwas that say things like, coffee is for the lovers of God, like ink is for the scholars. Okay, the next time somebody <laughs> wants to comment on how much coffee I intake, that's that's going to be my go-to well, line. Calvin, you're on the path of becoming a lover. Yes. That's it. Thank you, Dr. Gray. <laughs> Mashallah, like I said, your resume is incredible. Your organization is incredible. I absolutely love the idea of you talking about education, you know, with this podcast, I just thought we're just going to share stories just to lessen the struggles and, and the feeling of being alone. But throughout these stories, there is education and there. I feel like there's just so much that I personally learned about my faith and how much it empowers us. And mashallah, like I, I feel like these are conversations that definitely need to be had. And education is super, super important for a community to thrive without education, without knowledge. How much more can we, you know, just move the needle a bit? So I, I really want to thank you again today just for having this discussion with me. And Mahar was something that just came into my mind. I had a discussion with a friend and we were just talking about Mahar and I'm like, I don't know where to even begin with this conversation because there's not much more that I know about it. You request a certain amount and then the, the other party agrees and then that's it. But it's like, there's more to it. What I would love for us to start this conversation with is what is Mahar? Islamically, how did it come about? What is the purpose of it? And then I think we can get into the questions that some of our listeners had in regards to this topic. So I think when we're talking, I think really that we want to start with a definition. Definitions are always good. Historically, the ulama have always started with definitions so that we all know what we're talking about. So yes, let's start with a definition. The mahr has often been translated as dowry. I personally reject that translation because in European countries in the West, the dowry was a bride price. 
So it really comes with a lot of cultural baggage that is not implicit in what I like to translate as a marriage gift. I think a marriage gift is good, although I do think I should do some more thinking around it because gift implies implies something, it misses, that's what I want to say, it misses something that's really important that is part of the mahar, which is this idea around the financial system of Islam. So I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. I just, so in this definition of a mahar, what it is, is a financial gift. It is a giving from the male spouse to the female spouse uh, at the occasion of the contract of marriage. And that amount, uh, Islamically, legally, shara'an, let's say, is not limited on the high end, nor is it limited on the low end, but it must occur. So when we know that it must occur, it should all, I believe it should give us pause and we should say to ourselves, okay, this is something really important. This is something that is a critical part of the beginning of a marriage. Now, marriage by itself in Islam is a complicated social contract. It's, a, it's an actual paper contract. It's a coming together of two people, yes, but not in sort of the Hollywood, you know, see you from far away and drift, maybe that's Bollywood, <laughs> drifting toward each other, you know, from across the room kind of thing. It's really a purposeful contract that intends to create a family, to grow a family, to work together, to better society. There were, in the past at least, a lot of opportunities for women in marriage, for financial stability. I don't know if culturally that is what's happening today, but Islamically, I would say that there is in marriage, or there should be, there's an intention of financial stability for women. Now, that may give us pause and say, maybe someone might feel like, well, wait a minute, why do I need a man to take care of me? And the reality is that the mahr starts that process out by giving a woman financial security. So if I'm a young woman or an older woman, whether I have a job or not, if I'm entering into a marriage, that means I'm entering into the possibility of bearing children. And putting aside sort of the moral issues of today, of whether, some, I mean, today in the wider society, there's so much extramarital intimacy that that maybe is something that that we have to really pause and realize that in a in a society that were to follow these rules and to walk on this path of the lovers, as we said earlier, <laughs> it would definitely be this would be the moment that she now is if she could get pregnant. Now, pregnancy hits women differently. Some women, they are just full of energy and they're ready to go and raring to go. And so your, your, let's say, trial lawyer who is pregnant and her body is just helping her and she loves it, she might be the best trial lawyer she's ever been. We also have those who are stricken into bed. They're stricken with morning sickness. We have those who have morning sickness for literally nine months and those who have morning sickness that happens 24 hours a day. Sometimes you have to go to the hospital for things like that. That's the the pregnancy. Then with the young child, there are all sorts of, there's all sorts of conversations around what, that we could talk about as far as like, what is the, what is the drain, if you will? I don't mean to speak of it as though it's a negative thing, but we're talking here about financial security. So what is the drain on women's energy when you have a newborn baby, even if you have help, what is that drain? So with that in mind, 
And considering that, especially in, let's say, your 20s or your early 30s, you might have three or four or five children, depending, the how then is a woman to compete for financial independence in a market where as much as we struggle, that's again, another discussion, but how are we to compete in a market where men, no matter how much they want to be a part of this, mashallah, like I know men that are so involved, they're wonderful fathers, involved, loving husbands. They follow the sunnah of the Prophet in that, but they're limited. They're not pregnant. They're not nursing, period. Like that's that's it. They're just not. There is an actual physical limitation there, biological limitation. And so during that time, it's really quite the miracle, in my view, the, the miraculous, incredible miracle, incredible thing that we that a woman in entering into this new season of life has been given a financial gift so that she can feel financially stable. She's not in this scary situation that so many women have been in across cultures where now if that if that young man who looked like he was so great turns out to be a he was a hidden narcissist or he was a hidden or something that really he's just not okay she's not at the mercy of his financial you know what and that why do i make it extreme because those may even come to divorce let's talk instead let's talk about just they get married and she's not at the mercy of asking someone if she wants to buy a candle or just the feeling of, I have money in the bank. My suggestion is to invest it. But even if someone doesn't want to invest it, if they want to use it to buy extra special baby furniture that's outside of the particular family budget. So the, the there's a vast difference between dowry and mahar, if I circle back sort of to what I was saying in the beginning, because the dowry having gone to the father in Western cultures meant nothing to the woman. But the this marriage gift or marriage giving, maybe I'll start calling it a giving, is something that is there to start a woman out on financial stability that is given to a woman in those early, that beginning of the relationship. And I'll talk a little bit about how it can be done. It doesn't have to be all given at the beginning, but for whatever is given at the beginning becomes something that she can rely upon during the season of childbearing. Of course, we know that many, many women cannot participate in that because of economic situation. And for many, the, this this particular mahar or marriage giving isn't going to help because their financial situation is going to remain difficult. And inshallah, they will receive help from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala during that time. However, nonetheless, it remains an opportunity for financial independence, which is something that I think as Muslim women is a point of pride. It should be a point of pride, a point of really noting that all of the Islamophobic, Orientalist, colonialist words around what our religion says of us, let's say, is mistaken in what they did not know and what they did not recognize as the incredible systems. And, you know, today we're fighting racism, we're fighting sexism. It's all about systemic racism. It's about systemic misogyny. We're not, the, the issues are what has been built in the system that makes it hard to be successful as a person of color or as a woman. And that is what is so incredibly beautiful about this as one piece of a system, a financial system that provides for women in a way that is unique and creative so that she can decide to not work. She doesn't have to pour herself into an income habit. She doesn't have to worry about that because she has some income. She has some money, which she can invest. She can do whatever she wants with it. And uh, she's also capable of taking that 
that money and giving it in charity too. So she also has this ability to build her akhira with her finances. So it's really an incredible, and it's not the whole financial system, of course, but it is definitely a piece of a larger financial system that is really important and something to be proud of. You brought up so many incredible points, Dr. Gray. My mind was just racing as you're talking, so I hope I can collect my points that I want to address to you. In regards to, you did bring up an extreme case of narcissism, but I do want to still validate that because I do understand what you were trying to say. Even just a woman should have financial security enough to be able to not feel like her movement is restricted in a marriage or in her new chapter of her life. Her movement isn't restricted. She is able to still support herself. I think I do want to start with like actually the beginning before I even get into the narcissism piece, but it's something that I did struggle with because I feel like in today's society, dowry has such a negative connotation, but I'm like, how if this is mentioned in the Quran? But I think there needs to be the ability to be able to differentiate between dowry and mahar. And I think it's beautiful the way that you did explain it because this is not a bride price. Mahar is not a bride price. It is a little bit tricky to call it a gift because I feel like when you do call it a gift, it almost gives the man the power of what he wants to give because quote unquote, it's a gift. You should be happy with whatever you get. But no, I view it as financial security. And I think it's really important to define it as such. And I I thank you for bringing that up and for notating that. And in regards to narcissism, there's a lot of women. Um, of course, we run this podcast. I run this podcast where we discuss some heavy topics such as divorce and trigger warning, abuse and whatnot. There are a lot of women, unfortunately, that do not leave their partners because they are not financially stable. What ties them to their partner is their lack of financial stability. So this is why I want to have these conversations so that women can enter a marriage knowing that if it ends in any which way, that you are financially stable, that you are able to exit out of this marriage if it is abusive. So thank you for bringing up that point. But it is also important to just have a woman feel empowered in her marriage and have her own financial security and whatever the amount that she asks for or whatever it may be. It doesn't even have to be a dollar amount. It could be completely different. But would you say a mahar is more so an Islamic prenup? And if so, again, maybe we would need like a, a divorce lawyer or not, but can this be upheld in the civil court systems in Western societies? Let's say I live in America, would I be able to bring my mahar, my Islamic prenup, my contract that I signed to the judge to basically uphold that in the civil court? What are your thoughts on that? So an, a marriage in Islam is a contract. And so definitely, I think we should be having prenuptial contracts because in the West, and I say that really specifically about the United States, because it should be a contract that is recognized by the court. I mean, that's how we, we should go about it. And that's the way to do it in a smart way. Of course, if somebody doesn't have a contract, then I would say that the mahar is not a prenup. It is a, it's a part of what makes that marriage valid. So when you're getting married, there are a number of pieces. And one of them is the question that happens, like if they were married, not in the United States, let's say in Damascus, the one of the things that the judge or whoever it is, the imam or whoever the sheikh that's marrying you is going to ask is, has the mahar been given? Has the gift been given? What is it? Like, it's really something that is stated and clear. And it's a part and parcel of the marriage uh, validity, let's say. Now, I don't want anyone listening to this who says, oh, my God, I didn't get one. Is my marriage not valid? It is what it is. But yeah, I, I I don't know if you want me to jump in now. I was shaking my head when you were talking about yes, the Quran, Quran versus whatever. You know, I think that sometimes we think we know better than Allah, astaghfirullah. And we think, oh, you know, I'm going to be better than one who asks for money. And perhaps that's also part of this weird Western training that makes us feel like when we're asking for money, somehow it's an exchange, like it's some kind of um, 
It's an exchange of goods almost, but it's technically not. Exactly. Not only technically not, it is absolutely not. The problem of saying, oh, I want you to, I've heard the following. I want you to teach me some Quran. I mean, first of all, that's really putting, that's a huge amana, number one, to put on the husband. It is also a strange sort of power dynamic where now this has to happen. Well, what if you don't, I mean, what if he's a terrible teacher? What if your relationship just doesn't work like that? What if, I mean, I remember when I when I got married, I thought, oh, great, I'm going to learn Arabic. That's the biggest joke ever. I mean, I learned it, alhamdulillah, but not because my husband taught me. And that's not, I'm not throwing him under a bus anywhere. This is not, I mean, you can imagine, when you get married, it's really not a relationship of someone teaching someone something. So I don't, and the imams who allow that, really, they need to take a moment and think that through. It's really, I disagree with that. Now, when it comes to something like jewelry or gold or something like this, especially gold, that's in place of money, that's an investment, that's great. Jewelry, you know, I mean, these things, as I said earlier, there is no limit. It can not lower or higher. It can be as little as the woman wants. But if it is going to be that little, then it should be that she herself, in my opinion, it should be that she herself is financially independent and doesn't have any concern and really is fulfilling the obligation of mahar in a way she can do so. But this idea that I know more than Allah, astaghfirullah, and so I'm too embarrassed to ask for money. And uh, no, like we sh- this is something to be talked about. And there is a, to help me talk about that, let me just say that the this can be given in something that is an early and late, let's say, or at front and later. And in Arabic, we call it muqaddam and muakhir. What that means is that you, someone who is getting married, Okay, let's say she has a master's degree and she's a teacher in Minnesota because I know something about the master's degree salary in Minnesota for a teacher. It's going to be about $50,000. And of course, I know some are going to be more than that. Some are going to be less, but just 50 is an easy number to work with. So she's, let's say her salary is something around $50,000. And she says to her, and she's getting married. And let's say she's 35 and marrying someone 25 was just coming out of college. Yalla, I'm, I'm mixing it up for you. Okay? Nice. <laughs> He's got a really, he's doing a fellowship for medicine. So he's got a future where he'll probably have money. But right now he's not making very much. She's making more than him. So, and she says, well, I would like my mahar to be $50,000. Now he can't afford that. So what she can do is she can say, I accept as my muqaddam, my, the first part, I accept $1,000 and the four or $500, whatever, like his, you know, 5,000. I mean, someone who's getting married should at least have enough $5,000 to be able to fork over for something, you know, gifts or something, at least in that sort of class of people who are educated in studying medicine and paying for school and all those things. And she says, okay, $5,000. Now that's great. And you're wonderful and amazing. And my, the later amount is 45,000. And she knows very well, he doesn't have it. And he won't have it maybe for five, six, seven years. No problem. She's okay. You know, when he starts to work as the surgical oncologist that he's about to become, he can easily give her after a couple of years, it's a debt on his side. So he has to pay it. Now, on the other hand, if he, may Allah make his life long, these imaginary people that we're making up, (laughs) if he dies before he pays it, it's a debt that comes out of his estate. Now, that becomes very important because she has a right to inheritance. 
but this is her the right to her money and this is a year of salary for her almost so it becomes something very important to her that she takes along with their inheritance because debts are paid first also if there is a divorce where he divorces her she knows that this money is coming to her if she wants to take time off from work and grieve even if maybe she's really sad maybe she's like oh thank god i'm done with him but no matter what she's grieving what might have been there's grief in divorce serious grief and divorce maybe she wants to take some time off and maybe if she's really smart you know she took that five thousand and invested it somewhere so she has a little bit of a little bit extra too but that possibility of breaking it up into two pieces that second piece can be given as a monthly sort of um, payment installment it can be given yearly it can be given every five whatever like they can figure that out and he can also suggest things and those are things that can be discussed throughout the marriage as long as the and and actually honestly if she ever wants to she could forgive him his debt some great aunt in chile dies and leaves her three million dollars she can say you know what i forgive you the forty-five thousand. you're good but if i were her I, if he has it i'd say give it to me i want to give it to I'm going to give it to Roboto. <laughs> yes, exactly. I love that. I love that you clarified that because in regards to Maher, so what I'm what I'm understanding is Maher is something that needs to be discussed before you get married, but can it be given in installments depending upon case by case? Then yes, that can occur. I, I know, sorry if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, but I know some people say, well, it's not religious, it's more so cultural, so we don't have to honor that. But I guess in this instance, if, if this person cannot give you the amount up front, then you sign a contract to say that this person's going to pay X amount of cash or whatever it may be per year. And that's something that you guys can both agree on. And if you have it in um, paper form so or in contract form. So I think I want to also just start the conversation from when do we discuss this conversation between spouses? When is the best time to discuss it? Because again, I feel like I've, I've witnessed this. This is discussed typically when both families are already having the ka'da, you know, the discussion of the both of the, the parties are about to mingle, get to know one another and get married. And then that discussion arises at that moment. And I think that is just far too late to be having this discussion. So when is the best time to talk about this and the Islamic contract of, of mud? <laughs> So before I answer that second part, if you don't mind, I just want to circle back to that statement that you said, which is that sometimes people say this is cultural, so we don't have to honor it. I've heard that, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, that's a that is that's scary because, yeah. first of all, any agreement, any promise, it doesn't a promise has to be honored. Like that's is one of the basic concepts in Islam, that if you make a promise, you have to honor that promise. And so a promise to pay is like any other promise. And of course, you have to honor it. Absolutely. It's the it's the original in the contract amount of which a portion has been given in the beginning. And that amount can be, I mean, also, and I've seen this too, and I'm, I'm happy with, I mean, this also, I think, is a nice way to manage it, is to say, you know, pay, I would like you to pay for my graduate school. I mean, that's a lot of money right there. It's nice to know that your graduate school is going to get paid for. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have loans. Allahu Akbar. Alhamdulillah. So that's another thing, too. And in that case, the money actually isn't going to go to you. It's going to go to the school. But you've made that agreement originally in the contract. And if he decides, however he's paying for it, you know, like if he borrows from his Uncle Bob, that's not your business. You know, like that's how he's paying for it. That's fine. So the second part of this really important piece of where do we talk about this? When do we talk about this? SubhanAllah, one of the other pieces of 
the negotiation for marriage is that there is this concept of a wali. One of the major, most important jobs of that wali is to talk about money. Part of that is so that it doesn't become this sore point. And also so that the woman doesn't feel shy to insist upon what is her right. But she can, she'll tell the wali, you know, I would like to ask for $20,000 or I would like to ask for, I don't know, 15 ounces of gold or whatever, right? And then he goes and says, this is what we're asking for. Now, what happens there between those two families? First of all, the family of the young man, especially if they're supporting him, they are going to be looking to give less. That's the nature of the human being. However, the psychological import of knowing that they are investing in this relationship from day one is really a critical part of commitment on their side. I've seen in the West, it's a similar type of thing, not exactly the same, but I've seen in Western relationships, non-Muslim Western relationships, the culture is moving away from providing for large weddings. And one of the reasons is they don't want to commit to the marriage. The family is, is reticent to commit to the marriage thinking, I don't know how long this is gonna last. And so they really, it's a strange thing to me. I saw, I didn't see the show, but I saw advertised on Netflix, a show called Mortgage and Marriage or something. And it's supposed to be about people choosing one or the other. Forget about all the other aspects of that. But one, one piece of that is that it's just families are not supporting their children anymore. Whereas Islamically, we really have this concept of supporting our children and supporting our relatives and supporting one another, especially as they begin on their road to adulthood, which is historically at least been something that marriage has been about. So this idea of where do we talk about it, it should definitely, at first, you know, do we like each other and we sort of want to get married right then, right there, like as we're beginning this process, but it shouldn't be something that people are fighting about. It shouldn't be something that anyone is offended about. It should be something that is a practical understanding the blessing of it. A woman should consider, she doesn't want to ask for a huge amount, depending on his particular, she should be sensitive, I believe, she should be sensitive to her lifestyle and his. There should be something reasonable. I mean, I I said $50,000. I was talking about her particular lifestyle and his as well. I mentioned his. You can ask for less and be smart, but the principle remains the same. That investment helps you to grow into you, uh, into economic strength. And so, if you're when you're thinking about what am I, what do I want as a mahr? What am I going to be talking about? You think about something that's reasonable, something that is reasonable for the family, but not small, reasonable. And then within that reasonableness, you also should be thinking smart about your own future and thinking, okay, so if I'm, let's say, if I'm asking for ten thousand dollars, I'm not gonna. I don't suggest spending that on, spend it on groceries, invest it, do something with it. One of my daughter's friend's mother, when she got her mahar, this is in Syria, she bought a taxi. She literally had monthly income because she hired a taxi driver to drive her taxi. And every month he came, she paid him, you know, he got it. I don't know what their deal was. And she had income every single month. As she and then she had like six children and she did her thing. You know what I mean? But she was she was, she was running a little business, light lift business for her. This is the way she described it. But mashallah, she was making money and she was able to then reinvest as her children grew. She reinvested and bought some more 
vehicles of some sort. So that's just one example of one way a person could use a mahar, be able to take advantage of the blessing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us. But to specifically, when should they talk about it? They should talk about it right as they are Definitely before you're setting the seating for the wedding. Like you shouldn't just assume. People can have very different understandings about what does this mean. And because we have this weird thing going on that makes women shy about asking for anything and makes them feel sort of proud of themselves when they ask for only a dollar or two, it becomes a, a weirder thing then when they say, okay, yep, yeah, um, $10,000 or I would like a full set of diamonds. Don't get diamonds. Diamonds don't last for investment purposes. Mm-hmm. Or I want, I want this much gold, which is a great investment, especially nowadays. Or I want whatever, like I want a master's degree. I want whatever, like whatever it is, cash. I, I think cash is good because you can manage your own money and invest it. And then again, you can do ma'addamu akhar. So just talk about it early. Talk about it in a relaxed way. Talk about it as the investment in the family. Talk about it as an investment in the future. Uh, talk about it understanding if the if you're asking for more than he has now. Talk about it with an understanding that you're investing in the future. And when my daughter married her husband, he was still a student. And my husband said to him, we know you have nothing. But at the moment. <laughs> at the moment, yeah. But we're in, we see that you're a hard worker and we know that you're going. And mashallah. Like, so, I mean, be reasonable to where they are but also be thoughtful to the economic situation that you come from so you can stay comfortable in that space. Thank you for bringing up those different points and different perspectives, because I feel like, yes, at least specifically in my small community, because I, I realized recently, like you can't just say Muslim community. There's just so many different Muslim communities out there that uphold different traditions and cultures and, and different things like that. But in my Muslim community, I feel like it's almost like, yes, the woman who asks for less, the bare minimum is truly applauded. That's why I brought up the Quran and verse from the Quran, which I'm not trying to say that's a bare minimum. That's incredible that somebody can memorize that. But it's like, you have to think about your future. And I think oftentimes when we're talking about Mahad, we're thinking of about it in the present moment, just right now, let's get it over with. Just rip the bandaid off, whatever I'm asking for. But like I said, going back to that statement, I feel like, yes, the woman who asks for the bare minimum or even nothing at all, which thank you for clarifying the point of Mahad is an obligation. It's a duty that needs to be done. It's not something that it's like, if you want to, you do, you don't, or you don't. And the women who do ask for maybe 10, 20, 30, 40, or even up to 50 or more, they're ridiculed, not ridiculed, but they're kind of almost shamed. They're more so like talked about and gossiped about in the community saying, oh, stay away from that family. They have a high price for their daughters. I've heard that. And it's it's so unfortunate that these conversations are being had about certain people and what they're asking for. I feel like in Islam, correct me if I'm wrong, there is no cap when it comes to how much you can ask for. Of course, if you're looking at this person as your partner, you do want the best for the both of you, but also you, you cannot forget yourself in the process. This is a financial security in your instance. You know, when you get married, Married, when you start a marriage, like you said, some people are both students and, and they're just starting off. They're, you know, but you are going to change and you're going to progress in this relationship. There's a lot of things that can change from your own salary income to the ability of you being able to work or not work, how many kids you have. So let's say you ask for a certain mahar amount, but that is not, you feel like it's not satisfactory after so many things have changed in your life. Is it possible to change the mahar amount? No, that was part of the contract. Yeah. I mean, hopefully. You have a lovely relationship and you can say, hey, honey, I see that you're making all this money and you see I'm not working. Can you fork over some money so I can invest it? And he should he will probably say, sure. 
Inshallah. How about an engagement ring or wedding ring? Would you say, would you advise people to not include that as part of the mahad? Because that is that should be considered something separate. Or is it again, a case by case, whatever the couples agree on? Because I've seen some people say, well, I request 20K and then he will come back and say, well, the ring was 5K. So there, I, all I have left is 15K. What are your thoughts on that discussion? That discussion, if he's really has $20,000 and she's asking for 20 and he spends five on the ring, she needs to either decide to have a smaller ring or to say, we'll do ma'akhar, we'll do something later. By the way, I'm not saying here that this, I don't hope that the culture changes, that we start comparing each other's mahars. How much did you get? How much did you get? I, I don't want that either. I don't want us to compare how little and I don't want to compare how much. I think we should be reasonable. I think we should think about this as a, a gift for our own, a gift from Allah, I mean, for our own financial security. The ring is something that's kind of a show-offy thing. Maybe it's better if the family doesn't have a lot of money to just have a plain gold band and then ask for the rest of it in cash that you invest. That would be smarter. I don't know if that would be, maybe it wouldn't bring, for some people it's very important to them to have something that they're sort of displaying on their on their, on their hand, whatever, Annie. This is not, it's, it's very fluid. It's really, what does she want? What does she hope for? What was gonna make her happy? But I like to remind women that while that is true, because as you said, things change, it's really good to seek the advice of someone older than you. Think about your future. Think about what's really going to be something that's going to make me happy, not just for a couple of months or a few minutes, but really on the long term that I'm gonna say, oh, I'm so glad I did it that way. I mean, if you take the $10,000 that is this cost of your ring, let's say, and you invest that money in a really solid something. And then in over the next couple of years, you're making an income on that money and reinvesting. You're growing that money to the place where in five or six years, after you gain a little weight, your fingers get a bit fatter, you can buy your own ring. It can be exactly what your taste is. And you've got both. You've got a ring and you've got a um, a little nest egg for yourself to 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 be able to support the community to be able to do the sadaqa that you want to be able to how beautiful is that we have a donor who called us up and said i want to donate like we didn't reach out to her she reached out to us a woman a married woman but she was reaching out to us with her money wrote us a check for thirty thousand dollars and that was I, I, of course i can talk about how what a blessing that was but there's another part of me that says, subhanAllah, women, we are an amazing force. If we would take care of our money and use it together for society and community and cultural change, we would just, it was, this would be a beautiful world. It would be a beautiful world. Yes, definitely. To invest in just to empower women. We start with these conversations because it does empower women from that aspect. There have been other questions that have been asked in regards to, I, you know, gave my future spouse a request of what my mahramah should be and he denied it. What do we do in this instance? Again, is this something, you know, I feel like if, if, if this is a deal breaker for you, maybe this is the moment that you walk away. Because I do think when we talk about compatibility, sometimes we just like look at, do we like this person and whatnot, but we don't look at the financial aspect of it. If this is something that truly matters to you and you are at the point right now, maybe you're still in school, you're not financially independent and it does matter to you, then I think you have to really think about that from that aspect and not forego the amount. Or if you can, you can lessen the amount. But what would a woman do in that instance? 
instance, if her future spouse says, unfortunately, I cannot give you that amount. Or what if another part of that question is, let's just say they do agree on that amount, but he doesn't give it to her right away and she doesn't see it post-marriage and the conversation is not being had and he's just completely ignoring it. What do we do in that instance from our perspective as women when we are faced with both sides of this coin? So the first side of the coin is that you've learned something And that's really important about this person. Either, and there are a number of things, you have to figure out what you've learned. Either you've learned that he is a person who has a lot of taqwa around money and is really afraid of being in debt for something that he can't guarantee that he'll have. And yet he's a generous person and he wants to give you of what his income is today. Now, if you suss that out, that's that's okay. Like if that means he's a generous person, but he has taqwa of debt, to me, that's a nice quality. But if he's a stingy person and you suss out that he's stingy, sister, get in the car and drive fast because there is nothing worse than a stingy man. I'm telling you. I mean, because no one is ever stingy with money alone. They're always stingy with money and time and emotion and so difficult to live with a stingy person. And it can go to the extreme. So if you really are assessing out actual stinginess, not just frugality, but actual stinginess, definitely you want to reconsider and think about do I really want to marry this person? But I mean, I think it's okay. Like Ali radiallahu an, when he was going to marry Fatima radiallahu anha, he said to the Prophet I don't have anything. And he believed about himself, he didn't. I mean, we don't doubt that. But the Prophet said, what about that armor that you have? Go sell it, <laughs> you yes. know? So he knew something about him. And so he was able to remind him of that. But we don't see in this that Ali was doing something, astaghfirullah, like, he wasn't being stingy. He just didn't think about that. He didn't realize. But the Prophet was telling him and telling all of us, this is a critical time. Sometimes you have to sacrifice in order to get married. And I think that's a really new concept, maybe. There's a lot of sacrificing that women do when they get married, even as much as they are gaining things. There's also sacrifice in this new season of life or chapter. And for him, there is also some financial sacrifice of what he's giving and an offering to her as sort of a demonstration of his commitment to this future. And I think that's really important. So that's the other thing I would say. I have a student who is of Desi background and she married a man of Arab background and I didn't know him and it was in a country that I wasn't in. And so I was really worried because I wanted to be sure that he, she was a Desi background, but she was born and raised in that country. So she had like all the papers and stuff. And I was, I just worried that what if he wasn't serious? And the minute I knew that he had followed the sort of Arab cultural things of the premarital gifts and then all this stuff, the meher and the jihaz, we call it, these gifts of household goods and such things. I relaxed because I said, alhamdulillah, he's, he and his family, are investing in this marriage. This is real. Now, when you have converts, that's a really serious thing because she doesn't always know or understand that there is that there are cultural things to look out for. And it's really important for converts to reach out to local community friends, especially of a similar cultural background, to ask, is this way of getting married, let's say the party itself, from the party itself to the premarital gifts to the uh, mahar itself, does this feel right? Does this feel culturally normal? And we have to be honest with her. We have to take seriously our amana and talking to Congress, not just say to them, yeah, yeah, it's okay because we want them married off. For whatever reason, the community loves to marry off converts. It's like we think if we've married them off, 
then halos, we don't have to worry about them anymore. The community is good at the matchmaking end of it, where they pat themselves on the back when they matchmake a convert with somebody who was born Muslim, but then that's it, it ends there, the relationship. They don't you know, make sure that she is properly taken care of and she understands the Islamic obligations that he has to uphold. And I, I honestly think that's unfortunate. That's why I had to include this in part of the outline because there's a lot of reverts that also listen to the podcast and it breaks my heart how we just leave them in the dark. It's it's really incredibly um, dissatisfying to just realize like, that this is actually happening to reverts in our community. So I just finished a book. I just wrote a book called Project Lena, Bringing Our Whole Selves to Islam. And the last, it's three modules. And the third one is Tend Your Ties. And one whole section of that is called Wed Wisely. It is really addressed to converts to be able to really think through whether or not they want a cross-cultural marriage. And really the rule of thumb should be if you wouldn't marry this person if you weren't Muslim, lots of times communities think, oh, great, he he's a man with two legs. He can marry this, you know, like... Bare I mean, minimum. Bare minimum, yeah. But if you wouldn't marry this person, if you weren't Muslim, don't marry him if you are one. It, there, there's no desperation there. You can, uh, you should wait until it's someone who you, who is really going to be a life partner and a, and a husband. So someone you can be a wife to and really create a nice relationship and bring your families together because that's another part of marriage. It's a family relationship, families relationship. And it's really important. We have a list of, I think, eight pages of questions in this book that you can ask your future your future husband. And they were written by one a convert, may Allah subhanahu ta'ala reward her, rahmatullah as she died this year. She wrote this page after page of questions and they're so wonderful because for converts, it's really important to feel that sense of, yeah, I, I can ask these questions and I need to figure out what are the important questions for me related to this topic today and related to other topics as well. I think my last question for you, Dr. Gray, is in regards to mahar and divorce. So in regards to a woman seeking divorce, does she get to keep her mahar if she does not consummate the marriage or even if she does? Are there any rights a woman has to fulfill in order to receive her mahar? And my other question is in regards, again, once more, I think I asked this in the beginning, but I want to get a good clarification on it. Can this mahar be upheld in Western courts if this person has not given her the amounts, her mahar at all? Can she be able to go to a civil court and ask for it? Or would she go to the sheikh or imam who witnessed her contract? Would she go to him to ask him to basically tell her spouse to give her the mahar? Because I feel like there are a lot more often than not, unfortunately, there are a lot of women that do not receive their mahar. It is being discussed. It's being agreed upon, but she never sees it. And then unfortunately, some of these marriages also end in divorce. So now that adds an extra layer. So are there any rights a woman must fulfill in order to receive her mahar? And what does she do in the instance that she does not receive her mahar at all, even though both parties did agree to the amount or whatever it is that she wanted? First of all, state laws are very different. So yes. it may vary by state. But if she has a prenup contract, I think across the board, she would be safe because she has a written contract. I, other than that, I don't know like what states will respond to what in if it's not written out. I appreciate that response because it brings me to, I'm going to do a separate episode in regards to prenups because yes, we can have a mahar. Yes, we can sit down with the sheikh and imam and discuss all of our, our marital rights and whatnot. But I do think it's also beneficial to just draft up a prenup too. It's just an added layer of protection. Why not? Especially when you live in the Western societies such as America. If you said you want 20K in, in mahar, make sure you also include that in the prenup that can be upheld in civil court. But again, it is a state by state 
state case-by-case situation. So I'm glad that you were able to bring that up as well. Yeah, and regarding divorce, but if he divorces her, he will have to pay her the rest. If he hasn't paid her yet, he should. He'll have to pay her the rest of the money for her mahar. If she asks for khala, she asks for a divorce without fault on him. Like he doesn't have the. He's not short on his rights. He's you know, there's nothing there that is. He's not abusive. She's just asking for divorce. She has to give it back which is one of my um, students said, that's why you invest it right away. I did not know that. That's interesting. That's why I guess this person asked this question because it is a good question. Yeah. And so she, that was her little funny thing. If you invest it right away, you just give back the principal, of course. But if there is a fasaq, which is a divorce where she seeks the divorce, but it's because his fault is with him, okay, and it's a judge that gives the divorce, then yes, she can keep it. I just want to say that that is a really simplistic answer. I mean, there are a lot, whenever it comes to marriage and divorce, there's lots of complicated little details and issues here. So, that's a very simplistic answer, but it's, it's good enough, I think, for this conversation. Yeah. I think you mentioned earlier, yeah, marriage is not black and white. There's a lot of gray area within it. There's a lot of, you know, especially because you have two different individuals every time getting married. So anything can arise between the two individuals, but I really, really want to thank you, Dr. Gray. This was an incredible conversation. Thank you for clearing up the air in regards to mahid versus dowry versus obligation. And the fact of the matter is there is no unreasonable amount for, there is no cap on mahid. I think a lot of women just feel a little bit, like you said, a little bit shy approaching these conversations, but we need to financially empower women. So I hope it starts with conversations like these. Is there anything else you want to leave us off with? Are there any future projects that you are working on that you would like for, you know, the community to know more about and how we can, inshallah, support you? Oh, I always have projects. I would suggest for everyone that they look at ribat.arabata.org because this is where you can take classes to answer all of these kinds of questions and you have the answers sort of in your pocket. And you also can find a community of women who are learning the answers to these as well, which is really important to create that cultural change. We need a, we need a tribe with us. And I, I think I shall plug my books. I have two yes. books, three if you include the one I translated. And one is Joy Jot's Exercises for a Happy Heart. And this is a book that is read over 52 weeks, if that's how you want to read it. It's 52 essays, each one addressing another way to find that joy in our faith and in our life. And then the newest one I mentioned already, which is Project Lena bringing our whole selves to Islam. The audience for this book is definitely a convert audience. We did, a dr- we, I have a co-author here, Najia Maxfield, and we, we were purposely addressing the convert woman. Now, that being said, I have had people tell me, let me know that it has been helpful for anyone who's on a hijrah. I like that. That's a Singaporean word that they use, which is anyone who is working to bring herself to her faith. And then the other group of people that have said it's been helpful for them. And I want to encourage anyone who works with converts to read this book. We have a lot of personal stories here. You mentioned before that this podcast has a lot of stories with it, and there's so much education with stories. This book has a lot of personal stories and my personal stories and Najia's personal stories, and then other stories that we brought in from other people. And it's really important if you are helping converts to understand the pain. Where is the pain coming from? Why is it there? Because I don't know a Muslim that wants to cause pain to a convert. I only know Muslims that want to be wonderful to them. But nonetheless, that's often where the pain is coming from. So we can educate ourselves and we can learn. I I didn't 
intend this book for that. But I've been told by those who bought it for that, that it's very helpful in that regard. So yeah, and then we also have Robotines and that's our programming for teenagers. It's just super fun. And that's all about teenagers meeting many Muslim women because that you just you just sign on for a five-week class once a week. I've taught two so far. One was Hermione Granger and the boys who tried to hold her back. <laughs> And I the love other that. One, that great? Yeah, that was a great, it was a really fun class. And then the other one that I taught was the spirit of pasta, which was homemade pasta, how to make homemade pasta. And the girls loved it. We had so much fun. And that's just me. We have lots of teachers doing lots of things, how to apply for a job, adulting skills, and a framework of Muslim mentorship. And Dragonflies is our children's program. And we, yeah, so we have books and all, a curriculum or developing curriculum. It's March, Women's History Month. So check out our free downloads on our website, rabata.org. And if it's, a, if it's about education, we're trying to do it. So you can follow us on all of our different platforms, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and I'm on all, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter myself as well, Tamara Al Gray and Clubhouse. And I'll make sure to tag all those. And yes, I've been fortunate enough to be in the same rooms as you on Clubhouse. And it's just incredible listening to you on all of these platforms. And in regards to converts, I think it's beautiful that you've written a book like that. And I think right now, especially because Ramadan is right around the corner, inshallah, ya Rab, we witness it. This would be a great gift to give somebody that is a convert, especially now we're in the pandemic. We're still in it. A lot of people are surviving Ramadan alone, but add the extra layer of them being also a convert. So they're a little bit more alone than we are. So it would be a great gift to just, you know, check up on your convert friend or, you know, anybody that's in your local community that's a convert and you can gift them that. But thank you so much, Dr. Gray. I know your time is limited. Mashallah. Can I just say that when you said that, it gave me chills. I just, the convert that's alone in Ramadan, especially this year after last year with COVID and everything. And we do have, we have a section about like how to manage Ramadan and how to create nostalgia for yourself. But you really gave me chills in saying that because I really want our Muslims to our Muslim community to think about the converts in Ramadan. Yes. Like, just think about them. Just think about them. Even if you can't have them over, you know, you're not vaccinated or whatever, maybe send them something. A gift, like you said, of the Project Lena book is especially appreciated. <laughs> yes. I, I will definitely gift that to somebody that I know personally that I've met through the podcast. Um, and she's just an, it's such a sweet soul and she's always messaging me and she's just incredible. So I would love to gift her that book as well as a care package. But it's just so easy. It's just check up on your local community members, just anybody part of the Ummah who, who is in part of your community, your society. So thank you for that reminder. Thank you for all the work that you do, Dr. Gray. Again, it's an honor to have you. And inshallah, we can connect once more, inshallah. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful to be here with you. 